The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. You would have heard of the idea that you have to see it to be it. As a reason, it's so important to have representation of all the people in our society. But one area where that is woefully underdone is accessibility. Around a quarter of New Zealanders have accessibility considerations, except very few things in society are built with much thought at all for what that might require. And in our culture, the choice has often been to be either invisible or patronised, or held up as beating the odds to become just like everyone else. But one super cool business has blown this up over the last couple of years of saying in great big letters on their tote bag no less, fuck you to the status quo. All is for all came to many people's attention first with its trailblazing fashion shoots and diverse models and helping provide new faces for Fashion Week. It's continued to grow into an advocacy and accessibility consultancy, helping brands like The Warehouse better design experience and better understand a good section of their customers. Along the way, founder Grace Stratton has been a powerful communicator for the issue, talking to companies on the TEDx stage, being named an InStyle magazine top 50 badass woman, and built this idea into a business around studies at AUT. It can't be easy changing the world, especially not part-time, but that's what's happening. To chat what's involved in starting a business in an industry that's chronically underinvested in, how you do this all around uni, and what's next, Grace Stratton joins us now. Kill. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Hey, take us take us back to the beginning. Uh, what was the first inspiration that led you down the journey that became All Is For All? Um, I had ordered a pair of uh, Miss Crab pants, actually, when Miss Crab was still around. And, you know, like everyone, I, I love her. So I ordered this pair of pants and I got them on sale, but they were still pretty, you know, pretty expensive for a 17-year-old student at the time. So they turn up at my door and I'm really excited to try them on because I had an event that I was going to wear them to. And I pulled them out of their package and I saw that they had this button on, you know, they had a button on either side that you would then use to do up the pants. 
And I couldn't see that that mechanism uh, was on the pants when I looked on the website. Um, and so as a result of this simple button, um, my mum would have to help me get dressed when I wanted to wear that garment. And I started thinking along the lines of, you know, why aren't we kind of describing garments um, to people in a more accessible way. All of my friends, the people that I grew up with, I've always used a wheelchair. So I knew that there was a community of people who would, you know, really benefit from this simple detail. So that was kind of the very beginning of Wallace for All, just, just looking to solve a really simple problem and just give people more information. Because I think the problem is, is that when people consider disabilities, they think that they need to design something entirely new for people with disabilities. And we see it all the time. You know, they put their ramps out the back instead of alongside their stairs, or they, um, you know, create an ad adaptive line of clothing instead of just thinking about accessibility as it pertains to normal clothes that you would buy, that anyone could buy. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to think about how we could just make clothes themselves more accessible. And the easiest way to do that was just to give people more information about what they were buying. Yeah, and it's kind of remarkable, isn't it? Like how it hasn't been that big a part of the conversation or the thinking in so much of the world when it is something that applies to so many people. And people like uh, Miss Crab, you know, businesses like that, that are so aware and trying try to be, um, you know, good in so many ways. It must have been a really interesting kind of new perspective for them to think about. Yeah, and I think, like, as you say, it's got nothing to do with someone, you know, being like, oh, disabled people aren't going to buy my clothes, so I'm not going to bother. It's just purely that people have never thought about it before and don't consider it to be something that they should include. Um, also, there's lots of other, you know, considerations in terms of accessibility. Alt text is a really big one, so, you know, the the... Every time you upload an image to um, an online store, there's the capacity to put text underneath that image. Um, primarily, that's supposed to be used for the blind so that when they have their screen readers, they're able to kind of have an image described to them. But a lot of um, brands, they use it for their SEO. So if I'm a blind um, person who's shopping on ASOS, for example, instead of having images described to me, the text underneath might just be red dress ASOS and there might be 2,000 red dresses on ASOS's website. So can you imagine how crap an experience that must be for a blind person um, to, you know, go on an e-commerce website and know for a fact that they haven't really been considered or thought of at all as a customer? Um, so, you know, there's lots of accessibility considerations that, as you say, have never really been thought about and never really been considered. And that's because disabled people continue to be a segment of society that's undervalued and largely ignored, which people do at their peril. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, at their peril and, and often without even maybe intending to. Like, what, what was the... What was the, the steps that you then took to help to, because, you know, having observed um, being part of a, a, a local fashion label that you worked with, you know, like um, observing the kind of really empathetic way that you came to people and were like, hey, I'm not, not saying you, you're, you're doing a terrible job. Let's try and do a better job uh, and, and gave people those kind of tools and, 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 and education. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. It, it, 
as we'll get on to later, like a lot of the fashion connections that I was able to gather were through my amazing co-founder, Angela Bevan, who has been a part of the New Zealand fashion industry for a long time and has garnered a lot of respect, rightfully so. Um, but our approach as a team has never been to go to people and kind of finger point and say, hey, Skippy, you're doing everything wrong. Because to be honest, I think that that disengages people from from the issue and and doesn't build solutions. Um, so instead, we've always gone to people and said, "Hey, these things are missing from your range. These things are missing from your e-commerce website, and you you need to think about them, and we can help you to do that." Um, the the other angle that we've taken, which we do so really proudly, but is missing from the conversation, is highlighting the commercial value of making your e-commerce platform or your line um, accessible. One in four people in New Zealand have a disability, so that's around a million New Zealanders navigating the world currently with um, with a disability. On top of that, you have people um, who are having injuries, you know, have had temporary injuries or people that have just had babies. Those things are access needs, but they just occur for a time in people's lives. So actually, there's a really large segment of society that might be either temporarily or permanently um, living with an access need. So when you open your business up to that, you're actually opening yourself up to more money as well. And like that was the language that we spoke. And as you'll know, that's the language that people listen to because ultimately we want to be great and we want to be good citizens and we want to have responsible business, but we have to make money too. And mm. mm. in, in terms of like how you actually got it off the ground, those first things. So mm. I, I bet a lot of people uh, listening would have seen some of those first photo shoots or seen some of the media um, coverage around uh, the idea of what you were doing. Like how did you go from kind of recognising that need to coming up with that concept? So the first thing I did, I think, was kind of carve out what my strengths were and what I what I didn't want to do in the business. Um, because a lot of the time with these movements, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but a lot of the time with any kind of movement, especially kind of in the accessibility and disability space, there are movements, but they advance maybe the profile of one person or they have a they have one person who who leads it from the the forefront and they're the person who primarily benefits. So I knew that when I came up with the idea, I wanted it to be something that our community as a whole or at least a good segment of the young women with disabilities could all benefit from. And I wanted to give other people platforms to rise as well because I feel like if I just went on and did this all myself and just bettered myself, that's not um, making things easier or more accessible for future generations. Um, so the first thing I kind of did was figure out what I wanted to do and I figured that what I wanted to do was all of the back end stuff, all of the things that were you know, to do with strategy and advocacy, all of the writing about the garments and maybe some styling of the outfits. Didn't want to be a model. Um, I don't really trade in my face, I'm more trade in my brain. I'm not a face person. So the first thing I did was look on Instagram for girls with disabilities who I thought could be models. And at that point, I was working with Ange, and Ange has been a scout for a long time. So together we found these models. Uh, I managed to get a little bit of money through some um, 
at NMYD grant. So I used, I think we built the website with like $2,000. We built the website with that money. Uh, we did a photo shoot with the skin of our teeth um, and with the support of brands like Ingrid Stans. Um, <laughs> I think you, you, you did a lot more for us than we ever did. Like yeah. you, you helped, helped um, yeah, a lot more. Yeah, so, so we did all that uh, off the skin of our teeth, off what we could afford at the time. Uh, but, uh, you know, what is a key message out of that is that we did it with almost no money, but it looked really good. And also it was mostly entirely accessible. It met all the criteria of the um, you know, web access guidelines. And we did that with almost no money. So if we can do that with almost no money, then brands who have a lot of money should be able to do it easily. Um, so yeah, that was kind of what we did. We just to be honest, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, I want to do this. I know we need to do this. There's a gap. Let's fi- let's figure it out as we go along. Um, and I kind of carved out what my skill set was and used that and then brought people in to kind of help me fill in the gaps. What was the reaction when you went to talk to the labels? And also, what was the reaction... Uh, you know, from the people you reached out to through Instagram, and you know, what 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 did people what did people say? So the models, I think, is is a really interesting one. I, I think, um, a, a lot of people with disabilities want to do stuff like they 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 want to contribute, but the world has made them feel like they can't. Um, and so, if you're a young woman who's say twenty seven and you've spent all of your life in a wheelchair, and for all of that time, you've very rarely seen a person with a disability who looks like you, because I should say that having one disabled person in a campaign who maybe you know has one kind of disability, that doesn't speak or connect with every single person who has a disability, because experiences are so different. So you don't necessarily have someone who looks like you in a campaign, even though they're disabled, if that makes sense. Mm. So. That was kind of our first barrier was like getting these models to kind of understand that, no, this wasn't a charitable thing. This wasn't like something that we were doing to, um, you know, garner some sort of like um, empathetic or sympathetic response. We actually wanted to create kick-ass content that everyone could use. So that was like the first thing. And I think it kind of amazed some mm. people that that was our approach because it was so different. Like, to, like you're not token and yeah. you, don't, you don't have to and be I'm a, not gonna a Paralympian, sit there, for oh, example, yeah. which, which full credit to, of course, Full all, credit all, to all Paralympians. Paralympians. But if you look around in society, the only, in my, to my mind, and this is my opinion, and you can come for me after the podcast if you'd like, but... Um, the only people who we elevate in society with disabilities meaningfully are people who are Paralympians. And Paralympians are fantastic, but there's so many different experiences of disability that we need to be highlighting as well. Um, so that was kind of our approach. The designers mostly reacted, as you said, they were like, on board because they were like hey we've never thought about this we can see the value and we want to do it um and yeah that was basically it they were like yep we see the value we understand that it can bring you know a lot of people into our brand i think also a lot of the people we talked to rightfully so probably saw a lot of you know good uh good um 
like responsible business in our pitch, you know, being able to be seen as a business that supports accessibility is kind of good for your overall vision as a brand. Um, but yeah, we never really encountered people who were like, no, we don't want to do it at all. I think um, there were some people that maybe questioned, rightfully so, I suppose, if there was going to be an economic return, because as as you know, like, as I just said, one in four people do have disabilities, but, but they earn less than their able-bodied counterparts. A lot of disabled people don't work. And um, in response to those things, you know, they were right in the end. Like the e-commerce platform doesn't earn a lot of money, and I'm not going to pretend like it does. But it actually exists as an example because the reason why disabled people work less and earn less isn't actually their own fault. It's the fault of a system we've designed over over decades of time and it's it's the fault of the messaging you know we tell disabled people that they should aim for less we implicitly expect less of them and so the outcomes of that is that they they don't earn as much because they don't seek out jobs or they or or there isn't a system in place that that enables them to to reach higher so in a larger sense the e-commerce platform kind of exists to be like no I don't want to I am you know, as a business, we aspire for more than what is currently happening. So it kind of needs to exist for that point, you know, for that reasoning, because we need to have an example of like actually more is possible for this group of society. Yeah, and yeah. It, it landed and so quickly changed the shape of the, the, the whole kind of awareness in the industry. So immediately within that kind of landing, a whole bunch of labels started to think about how they could increase the accessibility of their own websites and the work that they did. And then Fashion Week with the models that you'd cast there, which, you know, is a, is a pretty huge impact in such a short time. Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of it is Ange and I together, um, because Ange obviously has the, you know, fashion eye she's she's the one who understands and knows and has the connections in in that space and is able to kind of make it the you know look amazing and I've got obviously all that accessibility kind of uh, knowledge but yeah casting the models was a huge deal I think it's really interesting um when we cast the models one of the things that a lot of people said to me was along the lines of it's really great that the fashion industry is finally accepting of people with disabilities. And I kind of pushed back on that comment a little bit because it was actually really easy to get the girls in there. All we did was ring the casting lady whose number you can find, you know, through Fashion Week. It wasn't hard. And then we turned up with the 12 models. So I don't think it was that um, Fashion Week didn't want disabled models. I think it was that Nobody ever thought that it was possible that they could just turn up. People made it harder than it needed to be. And also I think our approach, we never went in there saying these are disabled models who, who you can cast. I went in there being like these are people with gorgeous faces, they will be amazing in your clothes and they also use a mobility aid or they are disabled. So that approach combined with the fact that we didn't approach it as something that was going to be really hard, mm. I think boded for our success. Yeah, and, and authentic and yes. coming from uh, from the people you're representing as opposed to some other people's ideas of what, what should be happening. Yes. Well, that's the other thing. I think it's very rare, which sounds so weird, but it's very rare that a disabled person actually leads a business um, that is a any business but 
particularly in you know the accessibility and disability sector, a lot of businesses are run by able-bodied people or by people whose children are disabled. And you know that might be valid in in some ways, but but I think you can um, develop more authentic to your point more authentic outcomes, better outcomes um, if you are leading from lived experience. I think, you know, if you were to compare it to any other minority group, would you have a women's equal pay um, group in your business that's made up entirely of men? <laughs> well, society did for a long time. Uh, for a they? long time. But, <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. but now that would be ludicrous yeah, yeah, and people yeah. would say, that's so silly, why are you doing that? I saw an article this morning. Um, Hilary Barry had commented because a man had written an article about a woman's journey with menopause and she said, you know, why would a man write this article? We see that as ludicrous, but it's still, you know, we're still coming to terms with the fact that disabled people should actually lead their own discussions. So hopefully, you know, all is for all and um, our business can kind of advance that discussion as well because it's really important. Kia ora. sorry for this interruption, it's Alice Neville here. I am the food editor at The Spin-Off. And I just wanted to pop in and tell you about our food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Hosted by me, Simon Day, and Sophie Gilmore, it celebrates all there is to know about eating and drinking. There's cooking tips, there's special guests, there's what we've been eating and drinking lately, and we try not to chew into the microphone too much. So if you like food and drink, listen in. You won't regret it. It's, it's at thespinoff.co.nz and all your favourite podcast providers. Yeah, and the way that you've worked with media to advance that discussion and you know control and still be in control of the narrative of what you're trying to to get across, like talk talk me through a bit of that because the reaction from media has been really cool, and as as someone you know is interested in the space, also really cool because it hasn't fallen into in in the main the the same kind of you know patronising or condescending tropes that so often happen when media cover issues that they're not prepared you know uh, used to maybe. Yeah, so specialist it, I think it's kind of a community effort because um, I'm thinking of two examples. You, you're you're entirely right. Um, after in the main, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. after like for the bulk of it, but um, in after the new uh, after sorry, after Fashion Week, um, there was an article that came out, and it the the headline was along the lines of people with access needs at Fashion Week and some people in my community thought that was amazing that disabled wasn't used and then other people in our community were a little bit you know why is disabled a dirty word because um, it, it's not like we're proud to be disabled and so that got me thinking a little bit critically and I've come to the conclusion that well first off you can't really make everybody happy and secondary to that um, I do decide to use the word disabled in an effort to reclaim it and, and to take pride in it instead of feeling like it's something that's been placed onto me and onto my community. Um, but yes, I think the reason why a lot of the coverage has kind of not fallen into those um, into those holes of like bleh, is, is that um, it's mostly, I think, not to be wanky, but it's mostly me and the way that I have approached it. And I think I've made it clear to everybody that we talk to that I don't navigate my business uh, with those stereotypes in mind. And I think, for the most part, 
journalists are really respectful of, you know, the narrative that you want to present. And a lot of the time, to comment on the stereotype thing, when people use words like suffering, you know, she's suffering from cerebral palsy or she's wheelchair bound, we see those words all the time. We see that in language all the time. But a lot of it is just a lack of education because people believe that those people are suffering because they've never seen anything else. They've never been challenged with any other imagery. And so I think All Is For All is kind of pushing back on that narrative through action, through showing new narratives, through showing new stories, through, um, you know, like going further than just the stereotypes that we've kind of been fed for so many years. I love the way that the fashion shoots and that kind of, um, you, you know, that, that kind of imagery and really just like, confronting the normal narratives in fashion has pushed that debate forward. But in many ways, that's just kind of, um, you know, the, the the music that you put into the world uh, the, and then you do kind of the touring <laughs> of going yeah. and doing the it's work. It's not how we make money. No, that's no. what he's trying to say. Yeah, yeah. So t- tell us how you go and actually like, you know, you, you take that conversation that you're starting and, and help businesses actually uh, build, build uh, awareness and build thinking about access needs into what they do. Yeah, so basically um, we did start off the business, I should say, thinking that the e-commerce platform would be like our main source of income. Um, It wasn't because, you know, as I said, disabled people earn less so you can't expect them to be buying a Kate Sylvester dress every two weeks, which is totally fine. Um, But basically what we what happened to us quite quickly is people were coming to us all the time asking us to do things, um, asking us to speak or consult. So we started, you know, realizing that we needed to widen our scope and kind of ensure that we were investing in as many as of these opportunities as possible. So we really work on a both. Sorry, we really work on a bespoke basis. So depending on what a company is up to, uh, depending on its size, we'll go in and we'll kind of help with, um, you know, positioning and helping them kind of understand like CX from an accessibility perspective or working with their um, staff with unconscious bias training or looking at their policies and kind of developing policies with them to, you know, really make sure that, you know, d- diversity and inclusion isn't just words you use, it's actual actions that you follow through with in your business or in your hiring practices. So we offer a whole range of different um, services to businesses. But I think the thread that kind of connects all those services is our approach. It's very brave. It's very, um, you know, young and You know, I'm 20, so I don't want to sit there with you and have like a fandangled discussion about all the things you're going to do. I want to start working with you and showing you and, and, you know, helping you to be better straight away. So our approach is kind of what I think has connected us with a lot of businesses. Another thing that kind of makes us, I think, really like different to other companies in this space is that our strength is in our comms and storytelling. So the way that we talk about disability, the way that we engage with our community is very current, it's very, it's boundary pushing, and that's what people want. And so companies like The Warehouse see that comms, they see that story, and they see how engaged with it the public is, and then they start thinking about, oh, we should really have an accessible customer experience because then we can engage with this community in the same way that All Is For All is. 
And what kind of stuff are you in there doing with, you know, using the warehouse as the example? Like, um, yeah, like who, who are you working with and what are you making happen? So for the warehouse, the warehouse were amazing. They, um, so another thing that, um, the warehouse were amazing. Um, another thing that uh, we have as part of All Is For All that we've established is basically an advisory team. So, you know, to my point about every experience with disability being different, we needed to bring together a team of people with disabilities who could offer different perspectives on issues. And so that, you know, so that we could make sure that what we were saying and what we were offering didn't just speak to my experience, it spoke to a, a segment of our communities and was able to advance, you know, dis disabled people as a whole. So for the warehouse, we actually gathered together that group of people with some extras, they all kind of flocked into um, a warehouse in uh, uh, in Manukau. And it was quite funny because there was like 20 uh, different dis disabilities just all coming in at one time. I think it kind of scared some people, but that's fine. Um, and we went into the warehouse. I did a like a 45-minute presentation first about, about you know, accessible comms. Um, you know, I uh, did a presentation about stereotypes, a presentation about, you know, where are disabled people? What segment of society do they make up? Why should you care about this? So we did all that. And then this team of around 10 people um, did shop-alongs with the warehouse. So a warehouse team member worked with a disabled person in, in our team and they went on a shopping experience together to get like cat food or something. There was a, a task that we had drawn up. And along the way, the disabled person would highlight to the warehouse worker what was inaccessible about their experience. And it was amazing. And one of the one of the really cool things that I'll always remember, it's awesome, but it's also like real sad because you realize how kind of crap it is out there. One of our team members turned to us and said, oh my goodness, they're actually listening to me. You know, and this is a guy who had used a wheelchair for his whole life and is only a couple of years older than me. And he was flabbergasted that he was actually being listened to and like genuinely you know, they wanted to do better. Um, and so, yeah, the warehouse is amazing. But that, that's a prime example of something that we can go in and do. And then from that shop along experience, we then created kind of action steps, next steps as to what the warehouse needed to implement in order to be accessible. And they're just um, opening a new store. So when they did the design process for that new store, they used all of our accessibility outcomes to go into the design of that store. So it's really cool to see that what we've done has actually resulted in change for the future. And that's the, the real thing, isn't it? Like fashion's cool and stuff, but like especially um, high-end fashion is, is kind of limited in its impact. And then to take the media interest from that and turn it into being able to change the actual way that places are built that I think one in four New Zealanders a week go into the warehouse. Like it's a huge um, connection with, with the country. That That's real impact. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because um, high fashion or like, you know, the, the New Zealand fashion industry, their impact is in the tone that they set for the rest of, you know, the rest of apparel to kind of follow. What Karen Walker does tomorrow, you know, the warehouse or Kmart might emulate a few weeks later or a few months later or whatever. So we knew going into it that 
we might not sell a lot of stuff, but we knew that what we would do with people like Ingrid Starnes would impact the way that H&M thought about um, accessibility. So um, H&M hasn't contacted us, by the way, this was an example. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it, we knew that we could use the fashion industry as a positive way to set the tone. And we'll always do photo shoots that are high fashion because, it, like, to your point, it's really cool. Like, it, it gets people's attention and that's kind of what we want. We want people's eyeballs on on our stuff. Yeah. Tell me about the merch that you released because talking about that accessibility thing about being able to afford things, like, it's really cool to have things that are so accessible on the site that people can buy into to um yeah to, to share in what you're doing well everybody loves to buy things and the example that i get, like everyone loves to support a movement and the example that i give is when chloe swarbrick was running for mayor of auckland which she sadly lost i voted for her um i bought one of her t-shirts that said vote for chloe and i still have it and i still wear it all the time because i just love the idea of supporting what she was doing i was like you know this is a young woman She's standing, you know, she's just like me in a sense, standing for something that she thinks can be better. And so, of course, I'm going to spend like 50 bucks to buy a T-shirt. Same logic applied to All Is For All. Disabled people want cool stuff that they know represents them. They want, they don't want your pity. They don't want your sympathy. They don't want to talk about a cure. They just want to wear a dope T-shirt. So that's what we went about making. Um... Ange Bevan, my co-founder again, she's the one who kind of came up with all the concepts for the T-shirt. So what we did was we um, found some disabled models. Uh, Michael Whitaker, who um, is, you know, had, had recently after Fashion Week come out as blind or going blind. He's on the T-shirt, you know, which was amazing. And then a couple of other really cool people. We took photos of them with their mobility aids, or just you know as they as as they are, and we put those photo you know put those on a t-shirt, and then we had two graphic artists design imagery for us. So one artist was Ruby uh, Jones, who did the amazing drawings after the terror attacks, and also uh, this young artist called Connor Fahey, who did the fight the status quo one for us, which is my favorite, obviously. Um, so yeah. Um, Ange did all of the, you know, creative around that and her execution was amazing and we had the help of some great photographers. But then another thing that we did, um, which was my kind of, you know, concept, because when we did the merch, I didn't want to just put out a T-shirt. There had to be something accessible about it in order to be authentic to our movement. So every single tote bag or T-shirt has a QR code on the back and you scan that QR code and it leads you to an interview with the model. Uh, or some, you know, limited edition imagery and also an audio description of the garment or the tote bag that you had bought so that if you are blind or, you know, for whatever reason want to listen to a description, that's there as another way for you to experience the garment. And I think that just adds an accessibility angle to the offering. But, yeah, the merch has been really cool and most of all it's been awesome to see um, people with disabilities wearing it and being like, yes, I'm here, I'm in this space and I'm proud to be who I am and, and, you know, turn up as my whole self. Yeah, they they are so cool. The, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love them. The um, the t- Tell me about how it all fits around, because you mentioned before that you are 20 and um, at uni studying a pretty hardcore course with a heavy workload. How do you 
like physically, you, you live um, an hour out of Auckland as well. And so there's a lot of kind of travel to and from. Like, how, do you, how do you fit it all in? How do you make it all happen? Yeah, so I study law and communications at AUT. And AUT has been a really big supporter of All Is For All. And we're launching something alongside AUT in a month or so. So, you know, AUT as a university has been really supportive of what I'm doing. In terms of fitting it in, I always say, like, um, most university students aren't spending all their time at uni anyway. They're usually doing something, but it's usually just not productive stuff, like not to generalise, but a lot of university students, you know, are hanging out with their friends, whatever, which is cool because that's the time that you do that. But I just spend the time that I would spend, you know, doing nothing, doing all is for all. And also um, I started doing law because I wanted to advocate and I wanted to um, build, you know, I wanted to have a career around being able to use my voice and, and make the world better for people. Um, but <laughs> it's quite funny. One, I remember one of our professors saying, oh, everybody wants to be human rights lawyers these days. But, you know, I actually do want to be, if I if all this problem doesn't work out, I actually do want to be a human rights lawyer. But what I figured was um, there's actually way more ways to advocate for people than, than just, you know, being a lawyer. Um, but... Uh, later on in life uh, my degree will give me a lot of strengths and abilities so I have to stick with it and and the two things do go together really well because the advocacy that I'm doing I've just picked my papers for my third year of law school um, and I've picked papers that focus around accessibility and human rights so that when I go and talk or when I go and you know make an argument I'm able to use what I'm learning uh, in my work at All Is For All and then the communications I'm majoring in PR which um, I should have said that we've had a lot of support from an amazing company called Sweeney Vesti who is a PR company so a lot of our media is also thanks to them so the PR and the the you know law really actually do kind of enhance all is for all it's not like totally disconnected it's not like I'm studying marine biology and learning about dolphins and then coming in and you know doing all is for all stuff the two things are quite connected and as for living in Walkworth I've always lived um, I've always lived like in the country so you kind of just get used to it but I'm hoping in the next couple of years to perhaps move into it well that's just a little easier and that kind of thing you know we were talking earlier about you, you know you have to be it to see it like not having you know been a Ponsonby kid you know like you didn't grow up in these kind of you know around these fashion designers and what have you but having been able to kind of uh you know be listened to and have an impact there like it's it, yeah did people tell you it would be hard and what was it that made you know that you'd be able to, to do it? It was mostly Ange, to be honest. Like, you know, you know Ange. Like, she's amazing. And she can, like, speak fashion. Like, she's able to communicate with people. But she's also super down to earth and, like, understands. Um, not that fashion people aren't down to earth. But, but you know what I mean? Like, she understood when I came to her with this issue the importance of it. And so she kind of was able to kind of teach teach me in a sense like what I needed to do to kind of fit in with the the Ponsonby kind of crowd but what I've learned is that most people in that crowd of like fashion are actually super wonderful people like there's a couple of people that you know might just be more Ponsonby than than I'm able to fake it but like most of the time they're they're actually wonderful people who just really care about good clothes and really care about you know ethics and doing things right and so I was able to kind of approach it in that way 
nobody told me that it was going to be hard. I think, you know, when I went to my parents with the idea, my parents are amazing, but, you know, they, um, they're from a generation that, you know, my parents paid off three mortgages, they've, they've worked, you know, they've worked their whole lives, they're amazing people, but, but going to them and saying, I'm going to sell an e-commerce fashion business, they were kind of like, whoa, what is, what does that mean? You know, what is that? Um, And so, it was just a matter of explaining it to them, and and they've always been so supportive and on board. My mum jokes that she's my Uber driver, um, but yeah, it was mostly just explaining to people what I wanted to do and why I thought it was important. And then after that, everybody was kind of on board. Yeah. And what's next? What's uh, yeah? What's the next steps with all this for? So um, we've made a. As I said, like one of the things that kind of makes us stand out is our storytelling and our comms. And so that's the area that we'll be focusing on kind of going forward into the next few months is like figuring and carving out how we can empower disabled people to tell their stories and and to, you know, advance the narratives that we believe in. Um, It's really important that we do that. as this podcast is being recorded, there was just a dude that was going to come to New Zealand um, who had, you know, pretty dangerous views about disabled people and about, um, you know, disabled people being born. Um, He didn't want us to be born, but that's right. Um, So with those narratives out there, with that out there, it's, you know, it's just made it more important to me that we kind of knuckle down and really advance what we believe in and show people that actually, you know, we need to be investing in positive narratives that are authentic rather than like scaremongering or pitying people with disabilities. So that's kind of our focus at the moment. What advice would you have to anyone listening who who does want to kind of do something in the change-making space? Uh, I mean, and, and the scale of the difficulty here, you know, like, Underinvested in, you know, it's it's a yeah. the, the, this area is 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 really hard. What what advice do you have for people when they will get those rejections and when things will be hard? On the rejection thing, I feel like I might have painted the you know all is for all as a, as if um, everybody's kind of said yes to it and and believed in what we were doing, and for the m- most part they have. But I remember I'm from um, I've been lucky enough to kind of grow up around a couple of people and have some good friends who were in the uh, VC kind of space. So when I first came up with the idea, I was like, well, I'll just trundle off to like a VC. There's one really in New Zealand, one or two. And so I was like, I'll just go and, and, and talk to them and see, you know, what the investment landscape is like. And it might have been my, it was probably my fault. Like I went, I went much too early, but I remember sitting down and the person was lovely, um, but he just didn't understand what I wanted to do. And he didn't understand, you know, the value of accessibility. And I explained to him that we wanted to, you know, do these things with these clothes and all this stuff. And he turned to me and he just goes, if disabled people had uh, questions about garments, couldn't they just email the designer? And I said to him, well, I suppose they could, but, you know, is Karen Walker really going to field, like, 20 emails about the buttons on a garment? So... The traditional space for investment has never been a space for all is for all. I don't, I don't think it will be because it's, it's not our focus. And change-making businesses are, you know, always going to kind of struggle to get that investment or that belief because you're not going to, you know, earn money to the same scale as, as a, you know, Uber might, for example. And that's totally okay because, you know, money's not the only way to measure the success of a business. 
Um, but the advice that I would give is, is just find a network of people who believe in the issue that you want to solve through e-commerce uh, through commerce, um, or business. Uh, there's, there's people out there like you who want to solve the same problems. So if you find them and connect with them, it'll make it a lot easier to kind of tackle any issues that come your way. Mm. And what will success be for you? I mean, having had some quite remarkable successes uh, to now, you know, what, what will success be for you with where all this all for all ends up? Yeah, it's a lot of people have asked me that. And it's quite hard to kind of give you like a definitive answer because um, I don't think with what we're doing, there'll be a point where like where we say, oh, we've done that. So we're going to stop now. You know, like some businesses are born for a specific purpose that they then meet and they might decide to then disband. But accessibility is a, you know, ever-changing issue. It's people with disabilities are facing contemporary problems um, and they'll continue to face issues that we don't even, you know, we can't even conceptualise yet. So success to me just looks like all is for all continuing to be a force that helps solve problems for disabled people or remains a voice that they can rely on to speak for them. Oh, no, actually not speak for them because they can speak for themselves. Um, but remains to be a voice that enables them to be amplified as, you know, a group of society. Um, because a lot of disabled people, they have, you know, every person I've met with a disability is, you know, amazing, got great things to say, but they're just not amplified. So success just looks like amplifying people's voices as much as I can and kind of unifying people around you know accessibility being a really important value for your business and just disabled people having having value as you know contributors or just human beings yeah <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah there thank, you go thank you Grace Staten, uh co-founder of All Is For All for no sharing your story today. No worries. Thanks for having and me. And for all the work you do. No worries. Thank you to Tina Tiller for producing and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.